Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome as our guest today Dr. Barry Popkin, the Carlos Smith Chambly Distinguished Professor of Global Nutrition at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, where he also directs the UNC Interdisciplinary Center for Obesity. Dr. Popkin has widely published one of the leading authorities, if not the leading authority, on global nutrition issues and has pioneered the concept of the nutrition transition. Barry, welcome. Thank you. Delighted to have you to Yale and to the Rudd Center. Uh, can you explain the term tra nutrition transition? Then we'll get into more details. The term nutrition transition really speaks to the stages in the way we eat, drink, and move, and how it's affected our body composition. The first stage would have been what we think of as hunter-gatherers, where we had to chase around our food. We had a very, very diet. Whatever meat we had was very low-fat and very healthy, and we ate lots of berries and other kinds of things, and we were super active. They were tall and lean. Over time, we moved to sedentary farming, and as that happened, we started eating very few products. We actually got shorter. We actually started to see the emergence of lots of, of, of problems, but it was a period when society grew in size and urbanization began, and we've moved forward in different stages of eating and drinking and moving since then, and our body shape and size has changed with that. And you've made the argument I think quite persuasively that there has been an enormous change just in the past several decades, that the, the speed with which this environment has changed is unprecedented. That's correct. Uh, and it's particularly seen in the low and middle income world. We used to think in the 1950s to 70s of Asia, Latin America, and Africa as the homes of peasants, Poor, starving, struggling, working with very little technology. Well, this is world has changed. Between the 1980s and the present, across the low and middle income, the way people eat, drink, and move is closer to us, and they've gone from a stage associated with a worried about famine and hunger to a period when a country like China's gone from none to a third of the adults overweight and obese. Today, there's 71% of Mexican women overweight and obese. Huge, drastic changes in the way people move, eat, and drink across all the low- and middle-income world. Whereas in the high-income countries like the U.S., we'd been a stage of behavior and diet and activity, really for the last 50 to 100 years where we had overweight, we had chronic diseases, pretty much solved the problems of infectious and parasitic diseases, but we didn't have enormous amounts of overweight. And that also exploded in the last 20 years in speed and size and magnitude as a problem. Let's talk about some of the specific changes. And you've done some really very nice research on this. And I think more than anybody else have helped document the, the specific changes in diet in particular that might be leading to the rapid change in weight in the population. What are some of the specific things you found? Well, across the world, one of the most important changes is sweetening of the, our food supply. Every country in the world in the last 20 or 30 years has added two to 300 calories per day of sugar added to their diet. It may come in all the foods you consume in the market. It may come 
in beverages, the Pepsis of the world. It may come in many, many ways, but that's been one remarkable change. A second change is how often we eat. And I'll come back on that later, but we eat in the U.S. six or seven times a day, no longer three meals, and if you're a preschooler, maybe a snack. Um, and everybody's eating that way. And we're seeing the same thing happen, a tripling of snacking in China. Just in a two-year period of that, I'm monitoring them from 2004 to six. This is becoming global, the f- increased frequency of eating. So if people are eating more frequently, and what they're eating more frequently tends to be higher in calories because of the sweetener, that's a pretty bad combination. Yeah, that, that's one way they're higher in calories. And we'll come back and talk more about the beverage side later because it is in itself is a huge, huge issue. That in the U.S. and the rest of the world, we've eaten a lot of animal foods for a long time. And U.S. and Europe, essentially, we consume in meat and dairy products about 300 to 400 kilograms per person per year. That's really five to 600 pounds a year. It's unbelievable to really think about. In China, in India, for example, they consume more than less than a tenth of that. But they are increasing very rapidly. Uh, but they were nowhere near us. But they are increasing. And that's true in most of Asia, most of Latin America. People are increasing the amount of dairy products, beef, pork, poultry, depending on the country and culture. All the Middle East is the same way. So to pursue this issue of sweetness a little bit more, you mentioned two to 300 calories additional that people are taking in from added sweeteners compared to before. Place that in context. How important is two to 300 calories a day? Well, it's if you add extra 10 calories a day to what you eat, you essentially would add a pound in a year to your body weight. So... We know that if your calories go up by about 3,500 calories over your energy expenditure, that cumulative effect adds approximately a pound of body weight, typically body fat. Now, what's important, particularly about sugar added, is when it's added to food, we just get empty calories, no nutrients, nothing good to it. It just sweetens it, so we want to buy it more. When we add it to beverages, it essentially replaces water with caloric beverages. And there are some special properties we can talk about related to beverages that we need to understand. Okay. Well, thank you for the discussion of that. Um, Why do you think there's so much sweetness in the foods now? Is it as simple as because the companies can and the people like it more? Well, we've If you go back again to hunter-gatherers to the present, they got their proteins, their their fats from meat and grains and and tubers, cassava, potatoes, so forth. But to get the special important nutrients they needed, they found them in berries of a range of sorts and fruit. And clearly for survival, We need those to have a well-rounded diet. So somehow we developed or had an innate preference for sweet foods. We dislike bitter foods and we stay away from them. They tended to be poisonous, but sweet foods tended to be provide important nutrients. That's back then. People didn't have sugar then. 
Today, we get the same sweetness from a berry, in a fruit it may be fructose, in some place else it may be sucrose, which is half fructose, but the point is we get the same sweetness from sugar that we have billions of tons of today, whereas long ago it was only a little bit of fruit and we needed it to survive. We'll return in the subsequent podcast to the issue of beverages, but you mentioned in the talk that you presented earlier at the Rudd Center uh, the change in world consumption of oils, edible oils. Can you explain that more? I think that's a very important one. In the U.S., we changed between the 1950s and the 70s from butter and lard to Crisco and vegetable oils, corn oils, and all sorts of oils. And they came with a revolution of technology. We created a way to remove from corn and soybeans and sunflower seeds and cotton seeds and many other what we call oil seeds, the oil, cheaply. And then agriculture technology created new breeds with double and triple the amounts of oils in them. So we learned to create very cheap oils. Some became hydrogenated and became unhealthy for us, like Crisco. Some was just liquid and and okay for health. But they're nine calories of fat to every gram of that oil. Now, that's one thing. It happened in our country and it became cheap, and we shifted to consuming them. Now, what happened in most of the world, outside of the U.S. and Europe and Japan, those new technologies took a lot longer to become available, and those products did. And between the 1970s and the current period, they slowly became available. When I started studying in China, people consumed about 5, 10 grams a day of oil. Today, they quadrupled or more the amount of oil. In every country between the 80s and the 2000 period of Middle East, Africa, and Asia, people quadrupled, increased tenfold the amount of oil. And oil is cheap. It gives, makes the food tastier. The Chinese now fry a third of their calories. They used to only fry a couple percent, but it's tastier. It may not be healthy, but it's very tasty and it's cheap. And so why not do it if you can afford it? And before this, you had a very bland, horrible diet with just kind of rice and a little vegetables. And that's what's happened. In the United States, you see it all over. Everything is fried. I mean, so many things are fried, like fried cheese in restaurants. And at state fairs in some places, they have fried Twinkies and fried Oreos and fried Snickers. And you could understand why this would be popular because they do give it certain sensory properties that make the food desirable. Fat is a has lots of, unfortunately, and we needed fatty foods. This goes back to early hunter-gatherers to the present, too. We had food very occasionally, and when we needed it, we needed to get the richest, fattiest food so we could store enough calories. So if we loved fat, and we probably goes back to them as far as we can tell, and if you found something with fat, you ate it because it stored a lot more calories for you. You mentioned several times that because oils are cheap, it becomes possible to fry things. Have agriculture policies played a role in the cheapness of these oils? Well, agricultural policies played a major role in the creation of this technology. It was really the U.S. government and the Japanese that pushed it and created the technology. And we put in the money to create the cheaper varieties with more oils in them. And now it's a private sector issue 
but we did most of the work. In most of the third world, it was the same way. In Asian, African, Latin America, government policy had a lot to do with it. But government policy has been much more important in another part of our diet than on, on edible oils, on vegetable oils. It's been the critical driving force in the amount of animal foods and dairy products that we consume. Uh, and that's what we need to understand the most, that in 1940, we had very little modernization in agriculture, any place in the globe. The reapers and everything, they had pictures of them in the 30s, but people, farmers had very little access. Modernization and modern technology came to America after the war. It came to Europe after the war, and the government subsidized it. We created highways that went from to help transport the goods. We created technologies for refrigeration, grain elevators. We did it all to make cheap grains and particularly cheap animal foods, dairy, beef, pork, poultry, huge subsidies going from the government to them that created these whole sectors. But it would be okay if we also subsidized beans, which are very healthy, if we subsidize fruits and vegetables, which are very healthy, but we didn't. We ignored them. In the 1950s and 60s, the Southerners and low-income Americans had one of the healthiest diets in the world. They ate a lot of beans, they had low-fat proteins, they ate a lot of vegetables, and their diet completely changed as we made it so cheap to buy the unhealthy animal products, oils, and sugary products, and we, and we made it more expensive to buy fruits and vegetables and beans. Let me return to end uh, the final question here. I'd like your, your brief uh, response to this. You mentioned in passing earlier in this podcast that um, the health problems in the developing world are very significant because of this nutrition transition. Um, could you talk just very briefly about China, India in particular? Because I think people would be quite surprised by yeah. what you find in those countries. Yeah, I think that's a very good question. Essentially, when I began with this monitoring study where we survey for around 60 hours every couple of years, 20,000 Chinese from 228 communities, we found they were living and eating a very traditional life. There was no overweight, a little bit among adult men and women, but really they were healthy weight. They had no low birth weight. They had, they had less hunger than we had. They had solved the problems of malnutrition. But I saw the beginning of a change in the diet. And over the next four years, it quadrupled the overweight. Today, a third of Chinese adults are overweight. And actually, uh, some of the heaviest six-year-olds in the world are found in China, heavier than our country. So a big shift. India, a country that still has half a billion malnourished children and adults, the largest proportion of low birth weight infants and the largest absolute numbers in the world, two-thirds of the malnourished children and three-fourths of the malnourished women. The overweight problem is growing. Within a decade, there'll be 100 million diabetics in India, a country that isn't dealing with hunger, now going to have to deal with diabetes. Really massive shifts going on in this country, both sides of the extreme at the same time. It shows the importance of taking a global view of these issues. And as I said, nobody does that better than you. So thank you very much for joining us.
Our guest today was Dr. Barry Popkin, the Carla Smith Chambly Distinguished Professor of Global Nutrition at the University of North Carolina, and the, ex the, the author of an excellent book called The World is Fat. Uh, please join us for other podcasts that we'll be conducting with Dr. Popkin. Thank you.